That was incredible. Can we thank them again for wonderful worship? My favorite song, How Great Thou Art. So what a gift. Hey, it's a joy to be here with you. I want to introduce myself again. Uh, my name is Richard Dahlstrom. I'm senior pastor of Bethany Community Church. But I also have a couple slides, I think, and I want to show them now. Uh, the next slide, I'll introduce you a little bit to my family here. So uh, this is my wife of 42 years. It'll be September 8th, 42 years. And uh, our COVID puppy named Silver, who is a mini husky. In that picture, he's fully grown, 10 pounds. Uh, super fun. We needed another child because we're empty nesters, so there we go. Uh, and we live uh, in the mountains east of Seattle with my with my mother-in-law, who's 95 years old, and this is the reason my wife is not able to be with me this week. She's the caregiver for uh, her mom, who, at 95, has a Facebook account, an Instagram account, is on Twitter, uh, and beats me in crossword puzzles. So she's doing fine, just so you know. And then the future of the Dahlstrom family is here below. We have three children, uh, a daughter, to the far left with her husband and their two children, a youngest daughter in the middle with her husband, and my son on the far right with their daughter and one on the way. Uh, all the kids are scattered throughout Washington State. One owns a bakery right by the Space Needle. One owns a, uh, my son owns a bakery as close as possible to rock climbing because that's his uh, hobby. And then my, uh, my uh, son-in-law over there on the far, your far left, he's a, he's a therapist, a marriage therapist in, in Seattle. So that's, that's our future, and uh, it's a joy to be with you today. None of them are here, but they're praying for me this week, I know that. If there's one thing we've learned in the last year, it's the truth of this verse, James 4, verses 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, don't you love this next part? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Uh, when COVID hit, I was in Switzerland. I was speaking in Switzerland, the end of February 2020, a group of students has gathered, sitting in the front row. Ten feet from me is a couple, they're coughing. Uh, and uh, we go around, the, we, everybody's introducing themselves. They're from Cremona, Italy, uh, which at the time was the hotspot. And they said, we don't know what happened, but we can't go home. They've closed the town, they've sealed the town off entirely, and they're coughing through the whole thing. None of us knew what was going on by then. And then I, I moved uh, from uh, Switzerland to Austria to teach in Austria. By the time I'm in Austria, I have a cough, no sense of smell. And then all flights from Europe get canceled, so I can't go home. I rebook a flight out of Zurich to London because flights at the time were still being accepted from London. But by that time, all trains from Austria to Switzerland were canceled. <laughs> So the only way for me to get to Switzerland was to catch a ride with someone and go through a very remote, unmanned border crossing so that I could get to Zurich, so that I could get my flight to England, so that I could get home. So I got a ride out of Austria with a guest at the retreat where I was speaking, caught the last flight out of England to the United States, and then I arrived home. 
and I get a message on my phone from the person with whom I'd been in the car for seven hours saying, I have COVID, I'm in the hospital, I'm praying for you. And so it began for me, right? And for all of us, cancellations, job losses, life losses, family separation due to COVID. We spent Christmas alone, me, my wife, my dog, my mother-in-law, new ways of doing church. And then there was a presidential campaign on top of that and the moral failings of Christian leaders and deep divisions over things like mask wearing and vaccines and who won the election, all of which led some families to split apart, some churches to split apart, some churches to close, and I personally know many, many very discouraged pastors. Meanwhile, there's an exodus of Gen Z young adults from the church, a huge increase in cases of depression and anxiety, and I haven't even mentioned George Floyd, daily mass shootings, Israel, Hamas, all kinds of challenges. The point in all of this isn't where you stand on any particular issue. The point is that every issue, every issue seems to have created an environment pitting Christians against each other and some Christians against their culture. And whether the culture leans to the left or the right is not the point. The point is this, we're shooting each other. We're arguing with each other. We're denying the legitimate faith of the other arguing, splitting apart families, splitting apart churches, and all of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum, left or right, are doing this, and we all think we're right. Now, let me just ask a question here. Is there a better way to be a Christian? <laughs> and I would say yes, decidedly. And the book of Hebrews would say yes, and that's why we're looking at Hebrews this week. Because the flyover of the book of Hebrews is what I have titled Faith in the Midst. And it's intended to be a bit of a pun because midst sounds like mist or fog. And we live in the fog of a very difficult time. It's very difficult for us to discern what even is reality, right? So I've called this Faith in the Midst because the author, who is unknown, was writing to a group of new Christians who found themselves in the midst of several challenges. As a result, their faith in Christ was at risk. Three challenges I want to name in particular. Displacement and suffering, number one. They'd come to Christ, and many of us think that when we come to Christ, suddenly, kind of we're bathed in this aura and all our troubles are washed away and life becomes easier. In fact, it was just exactly the opposite for these Hebrew Christians. They came to Christ and life didn't get easier. Life got harder. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, hey, let's just recall what's happened to you since coming to faith. Some of you have been put in jail. Some of you lost your property. Some of you, your, uh, your businesses have been blacklisted. Life has not gotten easier for many of you. It's gotten harder. They're displaced. They're suffering and the reason that they're suffering is because though they'd come to faith, there were in their midst competing religious narratives. In other words, what does it actually mean to follow Christ? There, there were libertarians who were like these hyper-grace people who said, you know what, it's faith in Christ plus nothing, which translated means I can do whatever I want. I don't need transformation. There were traditional Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah. There were Judaizers, Jews who'd become Christ followers, but who taught that you needed to keep the old covenant law in order to be saved. And so there's, this, there's these kind of competing religious narratives. And, and for many within that spectrum of narrative, they would say, yeah, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's Jesus plus Judaism. 
It's Jesus plus hyper grace. It's Jesus plus legalism. And they were pitted against one another. And this created a challenge. Will the real Jesus please stand up kind of thing. And then the third thing that we see here in the midst of this is the subtle seduction of stagnation. Because when the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is distorted and Jesus becomes kind of the mascot for your subgroup, then you're not experiencing real Christianity. And what happened at the moment is there were these distortions of real faith that had arisen, and they'd arisen as a result of adding Jesus on to my existing life. In other words, you could come to Christ and not pay any social price because there were clubs where you could be a Christian and keep your Judaism or keep your libertarianism or keep your legalism. Just like today, there are clubs where you can keep your nationalism or keep your socialism or keep your individualism or your consumerism or your liberalism or your conservatism. And so as long as you're within your club, you find status and approval and position, but within your club, you're not growing because you're living in an echo chamber where everyone looks like you, thinks like you, believes like you, and by the way, has the same blind spots as you. So we shoot each other, we get discouraged, we divide them from each other. We find ourselves in our own religious clubs, and within our club, we're like this. We're killing it, man. <laughs> but we don't see our blind spots, and as a result, people on the outside are looking at us shooting each other, and they're saying, I don't know what Christianity is, but I know one thing. I don't want what they have. That's our problem. So the author's writing to wake up the Hebrews and call them to get out of their clubs and move on to maturity. The maturity of real faith in real Jesus plus nothing. Jesus cannot be a mascot for a nation state or a party or a denomination or a worldview. Jesus is the one who lived, died, rose again, and the author is calling them to this relentless, courageous pursuit of Christ plus nothing, knowing full well that those who live there outside the echo chambers will pay a price. It's going to be hard to live there. And so we need precisely the same message today because we face those same three things. Displacement and suffering? Absolutely. There's a guy in our church uh, whose, whose dad died alone during COVID because uh, he felt a pressure, it, the dad did, in his subgroup to not wear a mask, to not get a vaccine, and then, and then he, di and he died alone. And then the son is like this, should I have been more forceful? Should I have been more demanding? Should I have been more belligerent? He's my father, I love him. Th these, are the, these are the sufferings that we face in our moment. These are the, the, the displacements that we face in our moment. We make enemies with each other on social media, particularly during COVID, we found ourselves, as I shared earlier, unable to have eye contact, unable to have kind of shallow conversations that actually remind each other that we're friends. So all we see is our anger and then, you know, somebody posts something about the election, and immediately my flesh is like this. Oh, yeah? Boom, 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 boom. And then, you know, in my, in my better moments, the Holy Spirit says, don't publish that. And in my worst moments, I do publish it. 
And then 200 comments later, I realize I haven't solved anything, right? Displacement and suffering. Competing religious narratives. There's a Jesus of the left that's about economic equity and racial justice and environmental stewardship, but is often silent on matters of uh, sexual ethics and actively promotes abortion. <laughs> There's a Jesus of the, of the right that rightly calls people to covenant relationships and family and addresses sexual ethics, but is sometimes blind to the systemic sins of colonialism and racism. There's a libertarian Jesus of what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. There's a legalistic Jesus that creates fear and anxiety and the sense of have I done enough, have I prayed enough, have I studied enough, have I worked enough? And the thing is, you can kind of, in this culture, pick the Jesus that fits you, and when you do, you'll find a club that approves of you. And, and, and so there's these competing religious narratives in which we find ourselves, and this leads to the deception of stagnation, because the deception of stagnation is this. We get into our club, and then once we're in our club, we become tribal turf defenders, and we stop growing. So then, in my club, I begin to listen to conversations in order not to enjoy fellowship and, and enjoy ongoing transformation, be challenged, but I listen in order to put you in the bin of your club. And if you're not in my club, I'm done with you. How many have found this to be an experience in your own lives during the COVID period? This is a huge challenge in the moment, and unless we name these challenges and face them head on, our faith is going to stagnate, and stagnation leads to ugliness, and, and, and the ugliness then becomes a complete misrepresentation of Jesus, who is, by the way, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, endurance, wisdom, generosity, and hope. Where's that Jesus? And my hope is that we recover that Jesus this week and go home displaying those characteristics rather than this. Right? We need to be those representing Christ. So how does the author address these challenges in the midst? Well, he does it by exposing four main problems that were true then that are true now. Problem number one, the loss of the centrality of Christ as the reference point. And these are our four talks this week. Problem number two, we look at tomorrow, the loss of our identity in Christ. Problem number three, the failure to mature into rest, leading to stagnation. And problem number four, the failure to finish, leading to burnout. So today, we want to look at this, the loss of centrality of Christ as the reference point. Loss of centrality of Christ as the reference point. We want to recover our focus on Christ. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen as I read. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. So there we go. We'll just stop right there for a minute. So let's just, I'm going to reiterate here. In the past, in many times, in many ways, God spoke. Did you hear that? Many portions, many times, and many ways. What do we mean many, many ways? What's that? Well, let's look at this. Noah built an ark. 
but only after the flood was meat-eating sanctioned. We were all vegetarians until Genesis chapter 9. Abraham left home, and then he learned that any male who would be devoted to God would need to be circumcised. And he also learned that if God asks you to kill your son, you go for it, <laughs> because you're going to believe that God will raise him from the dead, as we learn in Hebrews chapter 11. Jacob, by the way, had four wives, and was a liar, and a thief, but was still at the forefront as the standard bearer of what it means to be God's chosen people. Figure that out. Moses received the law, and in the law learned you can't wear wool and linen at the same time. Sanctuary cities exist for people who accidentally kill someone, and they don't just exist. They're sanctioned. They're expected by God. Joshua received the command to go to the land and kill every living thing, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18. Uh, there's meat that's clean and unclean. Bacon's forbidden. What a world. <laughs> so then, but then you get to Jesus, it's like this. You've heard it said, you know, love your friends, hate your enemies, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, hang out with Samaritans, like the most socially marginalized people you can find. The early church, consisting mostly of converts from Judaism, decided that Gentiles could become Christ followers after a huge debate, but only if they refrained from eating meat sacrificed to idols. By the time you get to 1 Corinthians 8, eating meat sacrificed to idols is viewed as no big deal unless it leads someone to sin. And Peter has this dream in Acts chapter 10 where this sheet comes down from heaven filled with, quote-unquote, unclean meat, which, by the way, is all the good stuff, right? It's oysters. It's shrimp. It's, it's bacon-wrapped scallops, right? And yeah, Exactly. Let's cheer for that one. And then here's what happens. God says, hey, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter's like this. No way. I follow God. That's essentially what he's saying. And then God essentially says this, hello, I am God. <laughs> and I'm telling you, what was unclean is now clean. And so here we are now in the New Testament, and things have changed dramatically. So the point of this little flyer over the Bible is this. It's to show you that when someone says to me, I just follow the Bible, I often say, yeah, but which parts? Because it's not always saying the same thing. Genocide is no longer okay. Running to a sanctuary city because you accidentally killed someone is no longer okay. Wearing silk and wool is okay. Eating bacon is okay. Talking back to your parents no longer results in the death penalty. So how do we decide what it means to love God when God spoke this way and then it mutated a bit and then it evolved a bit and then it mutated again and again? God is unchanging. The manner in which God revealed himself to accommodate the culture of the time is not unchanging. So we go from the beginning more and more and more and as we will hear later today, we get this beautiful setting of the table so that when Jesus shows up, it's intended by God that we would say, that's it. That's the reference point, Christ. So Jesus then is the reference point. You are made in God's image, and therefore you're called to represent God's heart through your words, your actions, your priorities. That, after all, is what it be, uh, means to be fully human. 
And part of what makes the gospel good news is that there's someone who has gone before us living as a human from the first breath until he said on the cross it is finished. That entire time Jesus was the full, exact, perfect representation of God. And as such, Jesus becomes both our reference point and our source empowering us to live the life that we never could on our own. So Jesus is the final reference point. And this means that black lives matter and critical race theory are not our reference point. It means we'll take the lives of black people seriously and all people seriously because Jesus crossed social divides, broke down dividing walls, criticized those who neglected those persecuted and marginalized. Jesus called us to love our neighbor just as fully as we love ourselves. But our reference point is Jesus, not Black Lives Matter. This means the Republican Party is not our reference point. We'll take protecting life in the womb seriously for the same reasons that we take black lives seriously because Jesus cares for the poor and vulnerable and there are none more vulnerable than a heart beating in a womb. So this means that our version of Christianity, our version is not our reference point because the light of Christ has shown across centuries, across denominations in the East, in the West, among Catholics, among Protestants, among conservatives, among mainlines, among liberals. Nobody got it perfectly right, including us, but God is gracious, and in all those same places, the light has given way to darkness at various times, colonialism in Jesus' name, slavery in Jesus' name, anti-science in Jesus' name, sexual anarchy in Jesus' name, tribalism in Jesus' name, judgmentalism, petty exclusion in Jesus' name, all that is happening, yet God has remained faithful to us. So our calling then is to say, look, it's Christ plus exactly nothing. And if we don't get that right, our Christianity is unsustainable. So we have this one reference point, Jesus. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, I'm concerned that your minds are being led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The thing that's so beautiful about the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is this. When it's Christ plus nothing, I have both liberty and boundaries. And here, let me explain what I mean by that. When it's Christ plus nothing, I have liberty. I grew up in an environment, for example, that said Christianity is Christ plus no alcohol, right? That was, I grew up in Central Valley, Baptist, pretty conservative, and I was taught from the beginning, my dad used to say it all the time, Christians never drink. I've never met a Christian who drinks alcohol. So I kind of grew up with that. And then I began teaching um, globally and went to Germany. Now let me tell you what happened. So, uh, you know, I taught some students over a weekend, and this, the student says, hey, why don't you come out and hang out with my family this weekend? And so we went on this beautiful tour. Uh, this was like 1992 or 93 or something like that. The wall had just recently come down only a few years earlier. And so we went into East Germany and crossed the old border crossings and saw forests still filled with landmines and all this stuff. And then we come back to his house and this beautiful, this beautiful deck overlooking a forest, and he's invited his whole family to come and have a meal with, uh, with me and meet the, you know, meet the Bible professor, right? So, so, I mean, German hospitality is unmatched, in my opinion, 
amazing food, you know, all this bratwurst, all this sauerkraut, all this potato salad, all these breads that you can't buy anywhere in America for some reason, and, and then tons of alcohol, right? And, and so, you know, I see, I see all the wine and the beer, and I'm like this. Well, I guess, I guess only he is a Christian, this student, right? And then he starts drinking too. And so everybody's drinking but me, you know. I've got my water bottle, and I'm drinking my water. And uh, the person who's drinking most is the grandma. She's got to be in her 80s. And, you know, this stein of beer with this foam head, you know. And the beautiful thing about German hospitality is this meal goes for like three hours, right? Sunsets, it's now dark, you know, it's the middle of the summertime. And uh, by the end of the night, the grandma says, through translation, she only speaks German, uh, so her son, this, my student, she says, Richard, you come with me to my house. I want to show you something. So, you know, we walk a quarter of a mile to her house. You know, she opens the door. We go in. She pulls out a scrapbook from World War II and begins to share her life story. She goes, um, I, got, uh, I was born in, what was it, 1917, and my dad died immediately in World War I. He was killed in World War I. Then, get this, I married in 1938. And then my husband was conscripted by Hitler and he had to go fight on the Russian front. And he disappeared. And then my village was bombed. And then we were right by the old east-west border. She said, and then you know, shortly after that, in the post-war agreement, Germany is divided and all my relatives were on the other side. I was alone. No husband, no village, no dad. I said, did you remarry? She said, no. Um, I'm a, I'm a one-man woman. And I said to myself, I'm going to wait until my husband comes home. I believe he's going to come home. And two years after the war ended, she used to knock on the door. And her husband had walked home from the Russian front and made it all the way. Incredible story. So she shows me this scrapbook, and there's pictures of all this stuff. She said, life has been very difficult. And so I said, well, how did you survive? Because you seem to have so much joy and hope. And then she points to a Bible right next to the scrapbook. And she says, every morning, I'm on my knees with Jesus. And he fills me and gives me strength for every day, no matter what happens. <laughs> Listen, I just want to, I want to tell you, for me, that was the beginning of saying this. You know what? It is actually what? Jesus plus nothing. Amen. He's enough. Because then, then you go to Rwanda and nobody drinks alcohol. It's, it's Fanta. And plus nothing, right? It's the only, it's the only beverage available. And, and, and you wear, if it's 95 degrees, you still wear a tie to preach. And you go to Nepal, you know, and it's chai tea. And it's what look like Tibetan prayer flags until you start reading them and then they're Bible verses. 
I just love God's diversity and, and, and the fact that the wineskins are flexible enough to accommodate Nepali and German and Rwandan and Tutsi and Hutu and you and me and Republican and Democrat and left and right. This is our God. And we, we need to focus on Christ alone so that Christ plus nothing becomes our testimony. And if that's the goal, we have much to repent of. Because if we ask the question, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus lust for political power? He didn't. Would Jesus take up the sword? He didn't. Would Jesus seek to overthrow the empire, uh, the Roman Empire? He didn't. He lived in the midst of a corrupt empire, and he created an alternative reality, an alternative kingdom, so that in the midst of greed and fear and cynicism and power grabbing and anxiety, there'd be a people marked by generosity and courage and hope and service and peace. And if that's the goal, God will take us there, but that must be our goal. So my encouragement to you is to go deep with Jesus. Read a gospel this summer, maybe two. Wrestle with Jesus' hard sayings. Look at Jesus' priorities. Read carefully. Read slowly. Enter and get obsessed with Jesus because he's our reference point. And then the second thing I want to say is this. Jesus is the final revelation of God because it says in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, uh, when he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, there to reign forever. Do you remember Jesus' last words on the cross? It is what? Finished. It's finished. And then we're told that Jesus sat down, which is symbolic, this posture of completion. Every enemy is defeated. So two things flow from this. Number one, we are able to operate from a position of wholeness. When you look through the Bible at the various truths about our identity, it becomes clear that regardless of what we think or feel or experience at any given moment, all of us in the room, to the extent that we know Christ, we're already filled with nothing less than the life of God. The Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible. God never said you could live it. He didn't come to offer you a moral code that you could work hard to obey. He came to offer you the indwelling presence of God himself so that God living in you will enable you to be who you could never be on your own. A person of joy and hope and mercy and wisdom and patience. And so I spend a great deal of time in my life meditating on identity truths. I'm complete in Christ. I'm adopted. I'm fully forgiven. I'm loved. I'm whole. I'm complete in Christ, Colossians 2. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1. I can do all things through Christ, Philippians 4. What if this kind of thinking becomes the home screen of your mind? What if that were to happen? What if, you know, the default position of your mind isn't a sense of inadequacy or fear or shame or pride or anxiety, but, but the home screen is this affirmation of who God says you are. That begins to change our world. And so we operate from this position of wholeness. And second, we operate from a position of victory. You know the story, right? Lion of Judah. We hear it. Lion of Judah on the throne. I always wondered about that because um, Judah isn't like the best guy if you read the story of Judah. Judah's a guy who had the idea out of jealousy to uh, sell his brother Joseph as a slave 
and sent him down to Egypt. Jacob, the dad, as many of you know, had like two favorite sons who came from Jacob's favorite wife of his four wives. I mean, really, the story. Real housewives of Israel. It's a great... It's just, I mean, it's just amazing, right? All the dysfunction, and this is God's chosen family. Like, what's God trying to say there? Well, you know, Judah sells him as a slave, and then later on there's a famine, and, and, and Judah goes down to, um, to, to Egypt, where by that time, Joseph, due to his faithfulness to God, had been elevated to the position of second in command, and by, by virtue of the famine, Egypt has food, and they're able to distribute food. And so now Judah is trying to buy food from his brother Joseph that he doesn't recognize. And when Joseph sees Judah, he puts Judah to the test. He says, where are you from? And they don't recognize each other. And Judah says, you know, we, you know we've come, we, we're Jews and we've, we, you know, we've come from Israel. And he says, there's 11 brothers, one is no more. And the one who they think is dead is Joseph, who he's talking to. Was it more? And then, and then Judah says this, we're honest men. <laughs> that just, I mean, if you know the story, it just cracks me up. Yeah, yeah, we're honest men, except for the time that, you know, I sold my brother as a slave, and then, you know, I, I got married, and I had three sons, and two of them died because they were terrible, and then I refused to let the daughter-in-law marry the third son. So, oh, by the way, that's right. I impregnated her when I slept with her, but, you know, I thought she was a prostitute, so maybe it's not incest, I don't know. Uh, and, then, and then she, you know, and then she had twins. I mean, it's a messed up family. So then they get their grain, they go home, they run out of grain, they have to go back. And Judah says to his dad, Jacob, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin, the other favorite son, with us to Egypt. Because the guy in power said, I will never see your face again unless you bring your youngest son here with me. That's an amazing story. And so Jacob relents, says, okay, come on back. Take uh, Benjamin. And so Benjamin comes back with, uh, with uh, the rest of the brothers. And they go to buy grain. And Joseph has a meal for all the brothers. Do you know the story? So the meal, everybody gets a portion, right? So, uh, you know, we had a great meal last night. Uh, two ribs for you, two for you, two for you, two for you. All the way, you know, all the way down until we get to Benjamin. Ten ribs for you, right? Now, like if you're Judah, you hated Joseph because he was favored. And since Joseph's been gone, Benjamin's been favored the whole time. And now, in a foreign country, he gets 10 ribs, and I get two. So you hate him even more, I would presume, right? And then, you know, the story has kind of this ostensibly Disney ending. They all get their grain, and they all start heading home, and then the cops come and overtake them as they're heading back home. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the police say to uh, Judah, kind of the spokesperson, hey, somebody stole the master's cup, right? And they're like this, we would never do that. It had been planted by Joseph. 
We would never do that. We're so confident of our innocence that if you find a cup, execute the person who has the cup. And then the police say, well, we're not going to do an execution, but uh, that person will be a slave. And then you know the story, right? They all get off their camels or donkeys or whatever they have. Everybody unloads their backpack. No cup, no, beginning with the oldest. No cup, no cup, no cup, no cup, no cup. I mean, this happens 10 times. So you can kind of feel the cortisol levels going down. The, the pulse rates are going down. Everybody's relaxing. Okay, we're innocent, we're innocent. Benjamin, Benjamin, who Judas swore he would bring home, he opens his backpack. The stupid cup rolls out of the backpack. Now, listen, if you're Judah, you're like this. This is perfect, man. I didn't even have to, I didn't even have to sell him as a slave. He cut his own throat. I mean, if he still had that hatred and jealousy in his heart, that's what he would have said, right? And instead, what, is, what does Judah do? He tears his clothes the same way the father did when he heard that Joseph had been killed. They all go back. That's a stirring speech you can read in Genesis. But, but uh, Judah says this to Joseph. He says, listen, I told my dad that I would bring Benjamin home safely. And if I go home and Benjamin is not with us, he's going to die with a broken heart. So let me make a deal with you. Let me stay. Let me stay. I'll be a slave forever. Just let Benjamin go. Isn't that an amazing story? Now, at that moment, you see a total transformation from, from petty, jealous, self-righteous, prideful, angry Judah to the Judah who is what? Willing to lay down his life for his friend. Remember what Jesus said in John 13? Can I give you a new command? That you love one another. What? How? Even as I've loved you. And then Jesus kind of intensifies the importance of the commandment by saying this. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples in that you voted for the right guy for president. Oh, no, no, no. In that you, you know that the vaccine is real or a hoax. No. In that you support or are against BLM. No. Like what defines your faith are not these low-level things. Come on. Your kingdom is what? Not of this world. Think higher. What's up here? By this all men will know you're my disciples, in that you love one another. And by the way, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for a friend, just like Judah did. Just like Judah did. There's your credibility. Listen, where did Judah... Learn to love like that. Oh, you know, he went to a promise keeeper's thing and, they, you know, he got a notebook and they sang some super stirring music. A great speaker got up. They took notes. They came down here and burned some sins in some kind of a fire somehow and held hands and sang kumbaya and then they went home, you know, changed. Listen, no. You know how we learn to look like Jesus? Trials. 
famine, loss, COVID, ambiguity, loneliness, fear of the future, job loss, family cancer, and you can't see the person because of a virus. This thing that we wish would never happen, happened. But I'm here to tell you, this thing that we wish would never have happened is the very context in which you are able to look more like Jesus if your focus is this, I want to look like Jesus. Not I want to belong to a tribe, but I want to be, I want to represent nothing less than the heart of Christ in my living, in my breathing, in my speaking, in my, in my, in my sexuality, in the way I use my time, the way I use my money. May all of it represent Christ and may I be marked by love. When that happens, all is well. And for this reason, Jesus is the single focal point, and that's why it says in Hebrews 2, for this reason, we need to pay much closer attention. Much closer attention to what? Christ. Because he says, if you don't, watch this, if you don't pay close attention to Christ, if it's Christ plus, if you don't pay close attention to Christ alone, this is what we're told, you'll drift away. I was fishing once off the coast of British Columbia, and, uh, you know, we go out there, the motor's on, and then you cut the motor and you're, you're drift fishing or whatever. And what you realize, you know, I look up after 20 minutes and we've drifted a mile. We didn't do anything. All, watch this. All you got to do to drift away from Christ is nothing. That's all you got to do. It's like a law of the universe. Do nothing and you're going to be seduced away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You may st still be religious. You may still carry a big Bible. You may still even use the King James. Whatever. Uh, like, unless it's the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, you're going to drift away. If it's Christ plus politics, here's the problem. God's kingdom is not of this world. If it's Christ plus upward mobility, here's the problem. We're learning to be content in any circumstances, including poverty. If it's Christ plus the pleasures of this world, here's the problem. We're called to freedom in Christ and self-control rather than being enslaved by our appetites. I'm called to focus on Christ. Christ is then going to be the one who brings balance to my life and does the transforming work. And so to loop back to the beginning, we can't know what will happen with viral variants. We can't know what will happen politically in the next election cycle. We, we won't know what's going to happen to the economy. We won't know how camp will look in October or next summer. We won't know what will happen to our own bodies. But we can know one thing. We can know one thing. Second is 3, 16 to 18. When I focus on Christ, gazing on Christ's glory, here's the promise, inviolable in the universe. If I focus on Christ, I am being transformed. Notice there, transformation is passive. It's happening to me. I focus on Jesus. Jesus is transforming me. How? From glory to glory to glory. And when that happens, dividing walls break down. And when that happens, love reigns. And when that happens, you look more and more and more and more like Jesus. That's what our world needs. May it be so as we go from here. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much.